You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm pleased to introduce you to Tess Gerritsen. With over 40 million copies sold, New York Times bestselling thriller writer Tess Gerritsen is widely known for her Rizzoli and Isles novels, which inspired the hit TNT television series that aired for seven seasons. The iconic crime-stopping duo Jane Rizzoli and Maura Isles return in Tess's latest novel, Listen to Me, which will be available on July 5th. Tess, welcome to Uncorking a Story. Oh, thank you for having me again. Well, I always uh, like to ask my authors uh, the same question to start off, which is, uh, Tess, where does your story as an author begin? Age seven. I was, <laughs> you know, I, I was a, like a lot of writers. I was a big reader as a child and I was into Nancy Drew and all those mystery stories for, for young kids. And I think I was about seven when I told my dad I was going to be a writer. And what was his what is what was his reactions to that that, that revelation? That's no way to make a living. That was his reaction. So I wrote anyway. I wrote my first book at age seven. It was a biography of my cat who had just died. I bound it together with needle and thread, and it, after that, it was. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. I did have uh, something of a detour though because I was listening to my dad, and he said, uh, "Find something you can support yourself with." So I went to medical school and I became a doctor instead <laughs> for a while, but I always knew I was a writer. Before we, we jump into your career in medicine, uh, what was the cat's name? Oh, the cat's name was Katie. Katie. And did you take any artistic license in the biography of your cat? Did you embellish anything on, on her life? Well, in my story, she was a lot more uh, courageous than she was in real life. <laughs> <laughs> So not not scared of a dog or, or some other kind of thing. No, Kate, the Katie of my fiction was, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the thing about fiction. These characters in your fiction are like superhuman versions of people we actually know. Right. They're people we know, but but more interesting and more courageous and, and just, I suppose, worthy of having a story told about them. Yeah. Well, so you go to med school. And you, you listen to your father who says, hey, find, find a way to support yourself. And then you say, well, I'll, I'll go to medical school. I mean, there's many other ways to support yourself. So what was it about medicine that drew you into that as a career? Well, I was always interested in biology. I mean, as a kid, I was, um, you know, I would hunt for wild animals in the little canyon I lived next to in San Diego. And I'd come home with buckets of lizards. I had a, a mouse, a, a pet mouse. And when the mouse died, I didn't bury it. I actually cut it open to see what its organs looked like. So I think I was, I was on that path to medicine anyway. Uh, but, you know, the writing, the writing bug is a pretty hard thing to, to shake. Right. Well, I mean, it's a good thing that the mouse died before you autopsied it, because if, <laughs> if, if the reverse were true, you know, you might have become a serial killer. I'd be in prison right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So career in medicine and, you know, not unlike another author who I love to read. I mean, I love, I love to read your stuff, but uh, Robin Cook was one of my uh, early, uh, when I was a kid, my grandfather was a doctor. He was a, um, he's actually a surgeon in World War II. And after he retired, you know, I only met him after he retired because, you know, big age difference there. But um, he had all these Robin Cook books in, in his library and I would just start reading them. And I'm like, that is just, it just, I was fascinated by, by the medical thriller. And, and I'm curious, when, when did you pick up writing again after, after sort of the career in medicine? How, how did it just kind of bridge me to your, your career as a writer? Well, I was writing all the way through medical school and residency, but they weren't book length things. They were short stories. They were short articles. And I was occasionally getting published. But these were, again, these were just short stories. And it was, wasn't until I went on maternity leave with my first son that I had this block of time at home. I had a, I had a baby who loved to sleep. I mean, he, was, <laughs> he would take these three-hour naps. So that's when I would, I, would, I would write. So yeah, my, first, my very first novel was on maternity leave. It was a, romance, a romantic suspense novel. And I think that after, uh, maybe after the second child came, I decided to write more in earnest. So I was working part-time as a doctor, also being a mom, but also whenever I had a chance, I would, I would write another page. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the latest book, Listen to Me. So I know uh, uh, Rizzolian Isles are back in this one. Did you think you'd ever write another Rizzolian Isles book? I didn't know. The last one I wrote was an I Know a Secret. It was book number 12. And then I kind of, I want to do something else. And, and that's the thing about writers sometimes. We, we have all these various projects. They don't always fit in one box and we just, we want to do them. And I, you know, I kind of feel like I'm getting older and I realize that if I don't write these books now, I'll never write them. So let's just have fun and do something different. So I wrote a ghost story, which was The Shape of Night. I wrote a book in, uh, in conjunction with author Gary Braver, which was um, called Choose Me. And then um, the idea came to me for Listen to Me, and it really had to do with Jane's mother, Angela. You know, I, I haven't really told her story yet. She's been in the series from the very beginning. And, you know, she's, she's a middle-aged mom. Well, she's in her close to 60 now, I think, in this particular story. And it occurs to me as I get older, people stop listening to us. You know, everybody listens to the pretty woman, the young woman. Everybody pays attention to her. But what about these older women who have all this wisdom, who have this experience and maybe are, are pretty clever at seeing things. I also thought, well, where does Jane Rizzoli get her smarts? It wasn't from her dad. It was, it was from her mother. So I thought it was time for a story that would focus on Jane's mom, Angela. Yeah. Well, interesting. So but I'm curious, you know, when you, when you pivoted away from writing the series, what was the fan reaction to that? I mean, were they, were they disappointed? Because I know that, you know, certain authors, you know, you know have a hard time getting away from it's a blessing and a curse to have a series that's popular, right? It's a blessing. It's an annuity. I mean, you've got built in, a built-in fan base. It's a curse because when you try to make a, a change and say, hey, I can do something different, the reaction isn't always positive. I'm curious as to what, how your fans took it. Well, that's why Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock Holmes the first time. <laughs> you know, it's, it is. We get, we get tired of writing about the same people. Again, we want to spread our wings. So um, you're absolutely correct. Fans don't know what to do with it. They're shocked, number one. They're disappointed, number two. And they don't necessarily understand what you're doing. So when I wrote The Shape of Night, which was completely different, it's an erotic ghost story and a murder mystery, um, people thought, what the heck is she doing? 
It's also interesting to me that thriller readers, mystery readers, don't go into romance very well. They There's this, this divide. I think romance readers are willing to read across the board with all sorts of different genres, but mystery readers have a thing about romance that they, you know, it's almost beneath them. So I think that was one of the things that threw them is like, oh, she's writing about a romance between a woman and a ghost. What is, <laughs> where is this going? But I love that story. And I love ghost stories. I love Gothic novels. And it was based on a little bit about the haunted houses of Maine. Um, mm-hmm. I live in Maine. We have reportedly one of the most we're, we are reportedly one of the most haunted places in the country, if you believe in ghosts. And I thought it was a time to maybe address that part of my childhood, which was a fascination with ghosts. Yeah. I mean, probably no coincidence then that Stephen King lives in Maine. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we have really scary writers up here, but it's the least scary state in the country. <laughs> right. right, right. Yeah, no, I, I get it. So interesting, you know, talking about writing that sort of erotic kind of ghost story. To me, that that's a fascinating sort of, it's a fascinating pivot. How did you find writing in sort of a newer genre like that? Um, not that? Not that you haven't written, obviously, thrillers before, but sort of the, um, the physical angle might be a little bit different. Uh, how did you find kind of writing, writing that and how well were you accepted as a writer of that type of story? Well, yeah, I started off writing romantic suspense. So it's not, it wasn't right. that big of a leap for me to go back to romance. I think the hard part for me, and it's always difficult, even for romance authors, is how do you write about eroticism? How do you write a love scene without feeling like you don't want your mom to look at this or you're kind of embarrassed about your neighbors reading this? And certainly I was a little, you know, antsy about my male friends reading this. And so, but that's what the story called for because. I wanted to do a play on the ghost of Mrs. Muir, but a sexy version. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's about a woman who's truly haunted by something she's done. So she goes and she rents this house that happens to be haunted by a ghost. So the woman is really haunted by two things. She's haunted by guilt and shame. And she's haunted by maybe this entity that lives in the house. And they, be, they start to um, really represent each other, these different versions of hauntings. But in the meantime, there's also a, a murder mystery involved in the story. So it was fun to combine an erotic love story, a ghost story, and a murder mystery in the same book. Now, I know we, we got off topic a little bit because I know we do okay. want to talk about Listen to Me, but no, no. But when you, when you talk about you know, kind of writing something that you, know, you don't want your, your friends to be embarrassed by or, or your mother to read, I wrote a comedy. And <laughs> in the comedy, it's really, it's about this guy who's kind of down and out and he has this big experience, this life-changing experience in Hawaii. And as part of that, he begins an affair with somebody. And there's a very graphic love scene in that meant to be funny, but it's graphic and editor was fine with it. Everyone was fine with it. Publishes time to do the audiobook. Now I, I had somebody in mind to do the audiobook. I couldn't do it. I don't have the patience for it. But I had this one guy, this voiceover artist I know. I'm like, Mike, you have to do this book. And he agreed to do it. He read the first chapter and he's like, done, sold, you know, this good story, like where it's going. Then he gets to that one scene in the middle of the book and he calls me. He's like, you need to rewrite that because I can't get through this scene. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's like, he just wouldn't do it. And instead of, you know, me finding other talent, I decided to rewrite it. And- tone it down a little bit because it was, you know, he had a, he, let's put it this way. He had a point. 
at a point. But. This is a whole interesting topic for another podcast about yes. what is it about audiences are willing to read some of the most gruesome murder scenes. But when it comes to something that's very natural, something that has brought us all on this earth because right. we wouldn't be born without it, they can't stand to read it. We don't want to think about our parents doing it. We don't want to think about our children doing it. And yet it's a fundamental fact of, of being a biological creature. I mean, people have to reproduce. Right. Well, I think it's also like Americans, we are uptight when it comes to this. I mean, you know, and my wife and I have kind of different points of view. I'm, I'm let's say, a little bit less uptight than she is. She's a tad more inhibited. But yeah, we have three kids. We have triplets. They just turned 20 last weekend. I'm like, I'm very sort of like, I probably, they're in college. I'm sure they're doing things that we were doing at that age. So I'm a little bit more open about those conversations. But it's like, hey, my wife is like, they can't know what we're doing. I'm like, honey, I'm like, they know how they got here. I'm like, I'm like, it's gonna, it wouldn't it be, isn't it better for them to know that, you know, their parents are in a decent, decent place relationship wise? I know, but, like, but, but the, yeah, I think a, a lot of it is American is, is have, has to do with Americans because yeah. if you were to talk to a Dutchman, they wouldn't care. <laughs> <laughs> or a Frenchman. Forget about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> forget about it. All right. So back to uh, Jane Rizzoli and Maura Isles. So the new book is coming out. I know it's coming out July 5th. And, and you're focusing on sort of Jane's mom in this one. Did you learn anything new about her mom as you were kind of writing, writing her in this one? Yeah, I did because, well, the basic story is that while Jane is investigating the murder of a hospital nurse, her mom is busy investigating something in her own neighborhood. And you know, the suburbs, the suburbs seem boring to us, but through the eyes of Angela Rizzoli, the suburb is eternally fascinating because she likes to watch her neighbors. She's kind of like the neighborhood watch lady and she knows when things are wrong and things are not, you know, looking a little suspicious. And when one of the neighborhood girls disappears, Angela decides that somebody needs to look into this. So that launches her onto this whole story about what is going on in your neighborhood. When you look out your window, are the people you see through their windows actually who they say they are? And so that, that was the fun about it is, it's, yeah, we all, we're all, in a sense, busybodies. We all like to know what's going on in our surroundings. Jane's mom takes it a step too far. <laughs> She really starts to become an investigator. But what I learned about her is how, really how courageous she is. She's a very, very brave woman. And, you know, when it comes, if she sees somebody being threatened, she runs in to try and help them. She's a little bit like her daughter that way. Her her daughter got her moxie from mom. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to see Angela get into trouble and then get herself out of trouble again. Yeah. I'm just curious with the character development there, because, I mean, obviously, you mentioned she's been in all the books. So maybe not a primary character, but certainly, you know, a supporting character always there. But yeah, I'm always curious how authors develop characters and continually develop characters because if characters are always the same, then yeah. they get they get a little boring. Right. So right. I love the fact that you're you're focusing on the mom or that she's a, a bigger area of focus in, in this one. Well, she's had a lot of changes in her life through the books. I mean, she started off happily married. <laughs> And then her husband left her. And then she has an affair with a, a retired police officer, a, a retired detective. So and this is a, this is a good, strict Catholic woman. Yeah. Uh, and here she is having a, an affair outside of marriage. And so she has evolved to become maybe more open minded, more aware that people have foibles, that humans are not perfect and that she is not perfect herself. So I like the direction that she's taking and that she's just more tolerant of differences with other people. And she's also tolerant of the fact that people make mistakes. 
Yeah. You know, it, interesting you say how she's kind of like the neighborhood watch um, and, and are the people who are walking by your window really who they, they say they are. A few weeks ago, we had a house guest visiting us and my wife and I, we have this habit. Since we're empty nesters, we're looking for entertainment wherever <laughs> we can find it. So we have this big you know, window in, in where our kitchen table is and we can look out to the street. And we just observe people walking by. And <laughs> one day I just was mentioning, I said to my, my, my wife's name is Nicole. I say, Nicole, I've never seen this couple before. Who do you think they are? They were just this new couple in the neighborhood walking their dog. And our friend Christina is like, you guys need to get a life. <laughs> you are sitting there in front of your window, looking outside. She's like, go out and enjoy the world. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. This is pure entertainment for us. You know, kind of creating stories about these people who are walking by that we don't know who they are. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of fascinating to me. You know, that's true because this story talks about how... Um, Angela looks in the windows at night and she considers each window kind of like a mini television set. She's looking into different shows that are happening down her street. Um, you know, over there is uh, the two couples uh, is the couple that isn't talking to each other. Over here is the missing girls family. I mean, there's so many things that go on in our lives that we, we have access to just by looking through windows. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And that was Angela on social media. Does she stalk people on Facebook? No, she does not. <laughs> you know, I, to me that I, I didn't. In fact, I don't remember that she even mentions uh, being on social media in this particular show, yeah. uh, in this particular book. But what she does do is she pushes herself into these situations that really she gets a dangerous situation where Jane may have to come and rescue her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm excited for this book. I'm excited to see uh, Jane and Maura once again. Yeah, but I'm curious on a bigger picture, like where, where do your stories come from? Where do you suppose your stories come from? Because they're so good. They are so good. And I'm thinking even like going back to Bloodstream and Harvest. I mean, some of the, the earlier ones, the medical thrillers, right? I love yeah. them. But like, where do they come from? How do you hatch them? They, you know, they come from wherever I can find them. A lot of times it, it comes from reading a lot of true crime or reading the newspaper. You know, you read a newspaper and you see some kind of odd story and you don't know how to explain it. Well, that becomes a book. I find that a lot of the stories that I come up with are things that get hatched while I'm traveling. I know a secret came because partly because I was in Italy and looking at, at religious art and, and the symbolism, under, understanding the symbolism of religious art. And thinking, whoa, that's an interesting way to set up a crime scene, is that every, everything that happens is from the life of a saint in this death scene. And then I listen to conversations as well, you know, just hearing a story about children who are vanishing from the streets of Moscow and getting maybe being sent off to the Middle East as organ donors. That became the book Harvest. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, as you say, you, you get stuff from your own life. And I was having trouble with my older son, who was 14 years old at the time. And I thought, boy, teenagers are difficult. What if they're dangerous? And that becomes the book Bloodstream. Because, yeah. you know, you just sort of expand little tiny things that you hear, little tiny things that you see onto a bigger canvas. Well, to me, it speaks to curiosity and like the um, willingness or the openness. Just follow your curiosity to an interesting place. I mean, how an everyday encounter can become, you know, a best-selling novel. I mean, to me, that's where I think people who are successful with writing you know, differ from those who, who may not be. And maybe, maybe that's not fair, but just being the willingness to follow that curiosity to an interesting place to me is almost like a superpower. Well, you know, that's, it goes far beyond writing. I think people who are curious tend to be successful in every field. You know, success often has to do with putting together something completely new, something that no one's thought of before. 
And curiosity is where that leads, is where, um, where you get that from, because you're curious about a number of different topics, and you suddenly find out that fact A over here and fact B over here, which have nothing to do with each other, suddenly you put them together and you've got something brand new. Yeah, so, yeah I mean, I call it my formula, which is two, you know, one plus two is equal to six. It, it's more than, you know, the, the combination is more than the, the sum of these two different things. Right. Very, very gestalt, very gestalt thinking. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts, if I remember right. my psychology correctly. Right. And, and I, curiosity is just so important to being a writer. Yeah. Well, I wanted to just ask you a couple of fun questions here as we, uh, as we wrap up. And these are all meant to sort of uh, help understand um, who you are as a person, what some of your interests are. So I'm curious to start off with, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? Oh, well, I grew up in the era of, <laughs> it's embarrassing to say, Gilligan's Island and Get Smart and all, you know, all the, all the old sitcoms. I love those old sitcoms. Um, I love Gilligan's Island. I mean, and my dad grew up with Bob Denver. He, um, oh. I almost said John Denver. No, but Bob Denver in, in New Rochelle, New York. He was one of the neighborhood kids before he made it big. But I just remember watching that show and thinking to myself, if the professor can make a radio out of coconuts, how can they not build a boat to get off the island? Yeah, I know. It's, well, it's, you know, these, those old sitcoms are ridiculous. They really are when you think about how realistic is this. But what they did, like magic, was put together a diverse group of people in a locked house is what they yeah. essentially did. They can't get away. They're stuck with each other. They each have a different talent. And that's, you know, they, they could have turned that into the mousetrap. They could have turned that into one of them was getting dead, killed one by one. But intend, instead, they turned it into a, a, a comedy that I still think back fondly of. And, I'm, I'm, you know, now the Gilligan's Island theme is going through my head. Thank you. <laughs> well, just sit right back and you'll hear a tale. <laughs> so we got Gilligan's Island. The other thing that I thought was weird about Gilligan's Island, not to go off on this tangent, but there were always these, like, these random cannibals that would show up once or twice <laughs> a season. Like, where do they go otherwise? I mean, their primary food source is like in the same spot in every episode, yeah. yet they just kind of come and go as, as they please. Yeah, they go in and out of the studio canteen. That's right. <laughs> That's right. How about let's talk music? If we were to look at your uh, any, any of your musical streaming services that you may or may not use, I don't want to presume, but what artists would we find on there? That might be overrepresented. Who do you like to listen to? John Williams, you know, I, it's, it has to do with movies and the, the power of music to tell stories. So I love the music that goes on with, with theatrical films. So, mm -hmm. you know, somebody like John Williams who does, you know, who does the Star Wars theme. I mean, you hear that and you remember what it was like to sit in the theater and have that wonderful thrill of watching that movie for the first time. Yeah. Um, or the themes, you know, the themes that have to do with a lot of, especially I love themes that have to do with, with romance, like the English patient that, that, you know, whoever wrote the soundtrack to that and just last of the Mohicans, those are fantastic compositions that we think, well, you know, that's like off the stage. We don't, we don't really consider those composers, but they are, and they're expert at, at really manipulating how we feel. Yeah. Yeah. The right score can, can make or break a movie. Yeah, it really can. I, I had a teacher, a music teacher, my freshman year in high school. Her name is Marie Corso, big into classical music, but she, she would always play it for us and say, hey, listen to this when you are studying, listen to this and then listen to it. And then she would play it for us when we would have to take a test. 
And it was just interesting how it like activated like different parts of the brain yeah. where like memories are stored and it, it would help. I mean, maybe, maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but to me, it, to me, it helped to me. It helped. Yeah. yeah. All right. Number three, how do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen, depending on how you write and, and your goal is to write something in a writing session? How, how do you feel when you look at the blank page? That I need to cut this out and retire. That I, that's it. I've had enough. But, you know, I deal with that every day. Every day I'm sitting there looking at this page that I think is really horrible and that I've done a terrible job. And I keep thinking, okay, 31 books is enough. I can walk away now. And it is. It's a temptation to say, I give up. But the story keeps calling you back. That's it. It's really the characters to say, hey, I want to finish up here because I want to have a happy ending. So you go back to fulfill the fantasies of your characters. Well, they become part of your soul at some point, I would imagine. I mean, these, these characters, these, yeah. you know, it's almost a spirit. I think being a writer is almost a spiritual calling of sorts because you're not just doing it for you. You are, I mean, you are doing it for your readers too. I mean, I'm sure you do. Part of it is doing it for you, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really funny. I think, as you said, um, there is a spiritual aspect to it, but it's that we're channeling these people that we have made up. They become real to us and we care about them and we think, well, what are they going to do next? So, I mean, every character that I really care about has a great deal that has to do with me. So yeah. I want to have, I want to give them a satisfying ending. Yeah. Uh, what's a lesson about uh, writing or publishing that you feel like you learned the hard way? Oh, to trust your process, no matter how ridiculous it is. <laughs> you know, um, I, so I had a terrible time with second book syndrome. I wrote my first book, got it published, did well. And then I took two or two and a half years to write my second book because I kept getting stuck. I kept thinking, I need to have this outline before I can finish writing the book. I need to know where the book is going. And so I got, I really had a terrible time. And then I realized that my process is pretty much seat of the pants, that you just have to trust yourself. You just say, well, okay, I've written myself off this cliff, but I know I can rescue myself. And once you've learned to have faith in your process, once you've learned that you will be able to figure out all the problems in the story, you can continue. So I think that was really what I learned probably within the first five books is that every book is hard. Just get past it. Mm -hmm. I guess someone of a similar question would be, what's some advice you would give to an aspiring author or someone who comes up to you and says, Tess, I want to do what you do. What would you tell that, that person? Well, this is for me personally. Don't stop to edit. (laughs) Just keep on writing and trust that your first draft is probably going to be horrible. That's okay. Remember, nobody has to see that first draft. So I would I would say right to the end, beginning, middle, and end. And then when you've finished it, you can go back and fix stuff. Okay. And uh, last but not least, if you could write a letter to the younger Tess Garrison, right, to the younger girl who had just written the the biography of her cat. What are some of the things that you would, you would tell her? What advice would you give your younger self? Go to Mexico. <laughs> no, no, actually, that's a serious thing. <laughs> because um, I think that I would go back, I would tell myself, be more adventurous. Do the things that were, were tempting to you, but you backed away because you thought, uh, that's a little scary. Do those things. What's an example of something of where you could have been more adventurous and decided not to be? Well, okay, I'm going to refer to that Mexico quote again, because it's actually true. I was an anthropology student, and my um, professor had said, hey, we're going on a dig to Mexico this summer. Would you like to come? I should have gone. I should have gone and and been on an archaeological dig for the summer 
Instead, I was afraid to leave my boyfriend because I thought, oh, you know, he's going to lose interest in me. So I should have gone to Mexico because that boyfriend is long gone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, if you went to the dig in Mexico, you could have listened to John Williams do the Indiana Jones score. I know. I know. Isn't that something? I could have come home knowing a lot more about archaeology. Right. And that, that could actually, that score could replace the Gilligan's Island theme song that you're, uh, you've had in your head since we've been <laughs> That's in my earworm now, yeah. <laughs> well, the book is Listen to Me. Uh, the author is Tess Gerritsen. It'll be available on July 5th. Tess, where can people go uh, if they wanted to learn more about you? Do you have a website? Do you have any social media handles you want to share? Yeah, uh, I have a website, TessGerritsen.com. And I am on Twitter uh, at Tess Gerritsen. And I'm also on Facebook as well. Very good. Well, Tess, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you.